Corinthians chapter number 15. And uh, we're not leaving our study of Ecclesiastes, but we are going to have a lesson uh, that is coordinating with what we've been studying in the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes. And then next week we'll be back, Lord willing, in chapter number 3 as we continue our study through that book. But 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, the Apostle Paul uh, writes at least three books that we know of to the Corinthians. We have two of them in our Bibles. And uh, one of the, uh, the first book that he wrote was <coughs> to, <coughs> to uh, correct some things that the people in the church of Corinth had that were problems. <coughs> Out of all the churches Paul wrote to and that he started, probably the most, um, I guess the best way to word it would be carnal or worldly, let's put it in that sense, I guess, the most worldly-minded group of folks or churches that Paul worked with uh, that we know of in Scripture that he wrote letters to, would we would probably have to say would be the church at Corinth. There were a lot of issues in the church at Corinth, a lot of doctrine that was wrong, and Paul had to constantly be correcting them and teaching them some things that they just didn't have quite right. And uh, by the way, there's there's a lot to be said about that, that the Bible teaches quite clearly that we are to try the spirits to see whether they be of God and we're to be able to uh, test the, uh, uh, the, the doctrine that is being taught. While there are a lot of um, uh, what the Bible refers to as little antichrists, there's a bunch of uh, folks out there, the Bible calls them ravening wolves, and that will go out and they teach, intentionally they teach doctrine that is contrary to the Word of God. And uh, Paul is, is very, very careful in dealing with the church at Corinth in letting them know that he is... Uh, heartbroken over this, he's burdened over it, and uh, and so he tells them these things. And Paul doesn't he doesn't beat around the bush. Uh, he pretty well tells the church at Corinth uh, the way it is, and uh, he gets to the end of this very first letter, <coughs> and he's starting to wrap it up. And we'll begin reading in verse number fifty of First Corinthians chapter number fifteen. Now this I say, brethren. That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption." And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Father, we come to you once again. I pray for the next few moments that you would guide my heart and my thoughts and help us to learn what you would want us to from this passage this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We find a very prophetic passage here as Jesus is speaking of the fact that there are going to be some folks, and Paul is trying to explain to the church at Corinth that 
There are those that have died as uh, Old Testament saints and even as New Testament Christians that uh, went into the ground, and the Bible says that they are going to be raised incorruptible, and we know that one day we're going to have glorified bodies. And so he takes some time to explain that to the church at Corinth, that those that have uh, already died obviously are not going to have their earthly bodies. They're going to have some form of glorified body when the rapture takes place. And he goes on to say in verse number 52, or verse number 51, that we're not all going to sleep, but we shall all be changed. I heard a preacher quote this verse one time and said this is a great verse for the church nursery. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And that's not quite where that verse is going. It's not really talking about the church nursery. But it is talking about the fact that there are going to be some folks who are going to die and uh, they're going to go into the grave and their spirit is, is in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ or their soul is in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ because now to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But at some point when Christ comes back for the rapture, we found in, in the letter to the church at Thessalonica that the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So they're going to go before us and their bodies are going to be changed. And in that change, their bodies are no longer going to be what we call a corruptible body, but they're now going to be an incorruptible body. In other words, the body that will not decay, will not deteriorate, it won't have to grow old, amen. It won't have to have any more aches and pains, amen. No more arthritis, you know, our, our good buddy Arthur. Uh, no more arthritis and uh, no more uh, having to go to the hospitals and have surgeries and uh, aren't we glad of that? I'm thankful one day we're going to put on an incorruptible body. And uh, the Bible teaches quite clearly that flesh and blood are not going to inherit the kingdom of uh, heaven, neither does corruption uh, inherit incorruption. But it says in verse number 52, In the moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Our bodies, those of us that are left, those that will be Rising to meet the Lord in the air, Lord willing, that'll be all of us. Amen. We won't have to see any more die. We'll just go on to heaven in the rapture. That'd be the best way to go. And in that moment, in that twinkling of an eye that is spoken of here, the Bible says we shall be changed. We're going to get rid of this old physical body that is wore out and has scars on it and it's hurting and it gets sick and it has problems and it can't think straight and it doesn't know everything. And we're going to put on this incorruptible body, and this immortal, or this mortal shall become immor- uh, shall put on immortality. So he goes on to say that in verse number fifty-five, and I love or verse number fifty-four. I love this when it says that. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, this mortal shall have put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written: Death is swallowed up in victory. Amen. I'm glad the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he rose triumphant, and he shares that victory with you and I. There's no reason for a Christian to worry in this life because we've read the end of the book, and guess what? We win. Amen? We have the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It says, O death, where is thy sting? For really, for a Christian, isn't death at some point, isn't death something we almost long for? To be absent from this body and to be present with our Lord, isn't it something we almost start to desire, isn't it? Death doesn't have a sting for us, does it? Death certainly doesn't have victory over us. And so it says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? 
They lost that a long time ago when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Death does not have victory over you, and death does not have victory over me, nor does it sting us when we think of dying and going to heaven. Somebody said, a preacher one time said, a guy came in and threatened him for preaching against some of the alcohol that was in the day. And uh, the, the, the uh, beer joints were starting to close down in the town. And one of them got mad at him. He came, pulled a gun on him in his office. And he said, you can't threaten me with heaven. I mean, how would you, what would you say? I'm going to kill you? All right. Boy, to be absent from me here and be present with the Lord is far better, isn't it? That's what the Apostle Paul said. Can't threaten me with that. By the way, that's, what, that's how the martyrs had the grace to remain faithful. It might be a little bit of pain, a little bit of uneasiness, a little bit of discomfort. For a brief while, but boy, the reward that's waiting ahead of us is not even worthy to be compared. Oh my, what we're looking forward to. Oh grave, where is thy sting? Oh death, where where is thy sting? Oh grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death was sin. But we got victory over that when the Lord Jesus Christ took away and covered our sin and gave us forgiveness for it. The strength of sin is the law. We're no longer under the law, amen? We're under grace. And I'm thankful for that tonight. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory. And notice the victory is through our... Very important. Because we're getting ready to look at a verse that ties in with what we're studying in Ecclesiastes. All of this is given prophetically in 1 Corinthians. And we are being told of an upcoming event that we've not yet experienced, but we're looking forward to experiencing. And that is the rapture and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is a prophetic thing, and I want to just, as a by-note in our lesson tonight, just say this, that this is a tremendous opportunity of Scripture, great text of Scripture, that shows us the purpose of prophecy. Here in a few weeks, we're going to be having a Walk Through Times ministry conference. It's going to be a five-day, five-night series of messages on prophecy and archaeology and how the Bible all ties together and fits together. And uh, the reason we study prophecy, the reason that Revelation says that uh, blessed is the man that will read and these, these, these words, and the reason that we're to study prophecy is for motivation to encourage us to do some other things. Prophecy is not for us to just sit back and absorb like a sponge and get a bunch of knowledge about the end times. It is to motivate and to inspire and to encourage and to edify the Christian that, that, that because we do believe that the, you know, the return of Christ is imminent, we believe it can happen at any moment, there's nothing else that has to happen. We could be right in the mid-sentence and Christ could blow the trumpet, we could be out of here. And because of that, it ought to motivate you and I for several things. Number one, it ought to motivate us to live a holy life and a life that is ready to meet the Lord at any moment. Are there things in our life sometimes that if the Lord came back during that moment of our life, we would be ashamed or embarrassed? The sad fact of the matter is too often that's the case, isn't it? We find ourselves oftentimes, and Paul spoke of it, he said, there are things that I don't want to do, and he said, I find myself doing them. He said, there's other things I know I'm supposed to do, and I don't do those things. Oh, that the Christian would be ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to live with eternity in view, and by the way, we ought to think of it every single morning when we get out of bed. Today could be the day, because, you know, we really don't think about it a whole lot, do we? I I picked up the news 
uh, app on my phone this week and read after Friday night on Saturday morning the, the shootings that took place this past weekend. You hear about them every day anymore. And, and some of them took place at a, at, a, uh, at a football game. Just the other day there was a shooting that took place down in, in Jacksonville, Florida. One of my uh, former teenagers was going to college there in Jacksonville, and she had to post on her timeline, I'm safe, don't worry about me, I'm okay. We think about these things, that those people that got shot on Friday night, those people that their lives ended on Saturday, and as we look in the leader paper in the obituary section, and we find those people that passed away this week, can I tell you this, that most all of them uh, did not wake up the morning that they passed away into eternity and thought, today is going to be my last day. Most of us wake up without the thought of dying on our minds each and every day. And I don't think we ought to go around being morbid. Oh, I might die today. I might die today. But we ought to think today could be the day I go into eternity. And for a Christian, it ought to be an exciting thing. And it ought to be a motivating thing. Because, number one, it ought to motivate me to live a holy life. And, by the way, I believe that there's a, 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 a blatant disregard of preaching on holy living in our preaching today. We've gotten away from it. We've, we've gotten away from it. Boy, I tell you, don't let the preacher meddle with my lifestyle. Wait a minute. The Bible still preaches about holiness, does it not? The Bible still preaches about being separate and not touching the unclean thing. Amen? And there ought to be more preaching about holiness and holy living and right thought lives and right actions and right speech and right conduct. And so it ought to motivate us, first of all, to be ready for the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, it ought to motivate us to be serving God and doing all that we can to reach people with the gospel before that moment takes place. I'm convinced that those that have had opportunity to hear the gospel and have rejected Christ when the rapture takes place will have strong delusion that is placed upon them. And I don't know that they will ever get another opportunity from that point forward to trust Christ as their Savior. Now, you may disagree with me on that, and that's fine. I'm telling you that's what I believe from Scripture and things that I can read in Scripture. I do believe that there will be a host of people that the Bible speaks of that have not had opportunity to hear a clear presentation of the gospel. And I believe that during the time of the tribulation there will be, the Bible speaks of, multitudes from every tribe and nation that will come to Christ. But there will be a lot for who it's too late. And we've got opportunity, while it is still daylight, while there's still time to go into the fields and harvest the fields, to labor for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we study prophecy, not so we can sit back in our Sunday morning services or our Sunday school classes and say, boy, I sure have enjoyed this prophecy study. No, we do it because it ought to motivate us to live holy and to be serving God every moment of every day because time is short. Time is short. You say, Brother Greg, people have been saying that for thousands of years. And yes, and we're a day closer to it. Amen. I'm thankful every morning I get up, even though my body's getting older, I'm thankful I'm one day closer to the Lord coming back. And I'll tell you what, it ought to motivate us. And so Paul, as he speaks of this prophetic event, sums up this portion of his letter by saying, Therefore... We've heard it before, but any time in Scripture we find the word therefore or wherefore, 
we ought to look immediately before it to see what is being said. And we just took a moment to look at that. Paul is speaking of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It can happen at any moment. In a twinkling of an eye. At the last trump, he says, therefore. Now follow with me what he says. My beloved brethren, be ye steadfast. What are you saying, Paul? Because the return of Christ is imminent, be steadfast. Unmovable. What are you saying, Paul? Because the return of Christ is imminent, be unmovable. And always, how often? Always. What does always mean? Always. You want to look it up in the dictionary? It means always. (laughs) All right. Always abounding in the, what does it say? Work of the Lord. It deals with the two things, does it not? We're to be steadfast and unmovable. We're to live a holy life built and founded on the root of this word. And we're to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. I want us to look at this very quickly because this ties to what we've been teaching in the book of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, we have been dealing with the fact that Solomon has tried all the things he can imagine under the sun, or what the Bible refers to here as being away from God or separate from God, and he's tried this thing of labor, everything he could put his hand to, he tried away from God. And Solomon, the wisest man in the world, by way of experience, comes to the conclusion that all of the labor that is done away from God is vanity. Paul says something very similar here, doesn't he? Except he does it in the opposite way. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in the work. And I want you to notice this, par- this, uh, uh, this prepositional phrase here, of the Lord. Let me tell you, this is not just hard work ethic. I'm all for teaching your kids a hard work ethic. But we're not talking here about being a good lawyer or a good doctor. We're not talking here about being a good architect. We're not talking here about being a good contractor. We are talking here about being a servant of the Lord and doing the work of the Lord. This is the Lord's work. This is not work separate from God, but this is a work that is God's work. We are to be always abounding. I love this word abounding. It's to have more than is necessary. Uh, it gives the idea of, uh, of when you go, I, I like to think of it this way. I love coffee. Anybody else with me, you love coffee? Okay, I'm a coffee drinker. There is never a time that it's not a good time for coffee. And I mean, if it's two minutes before bedtime, it is still good. And don't give you the old watered-down decaf stuff. You get that real stuff, and that's got the Holy Spirit in it. Amen? <laughs> God bless us. That is not Bible, folks. That is, that is in the first book of Gregalonians. <clears throat> I like coffee. and when I, In fact, we went to breakfast this morning, and the waitress brought a cup of coffee, and it came time for uh, her to fill it up about 30 seconds after she brought my first cup. 
and uh, she brings the, the pot, and she begins to fill it up. And here's what I think of when I think of abounding. You ever, you ever fill a cup too full too fast, and you think, oh, it's going to run over, going to run over, and then it gets to the top, and it just starts dumping over the edges? More than the cup could hold. Uh, more than was necessary. To be working and serving the Lord, not the minimum that, well, I got my hour in today. But where our heart is so abounding to the work of the Lord that it just bubbles out of us. Just overflows. Falls into the saucer, if you will. Always abounding in the work, but not just any work, the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord. It ought to be done with the lifestyle that is steadfast and a lifestyle that is unmovable, but it ought to be something that you and I, how often are we to abound in it? Always. It doesn't mean we get on fire for God and we abound in it for one week out of the month. It doesn't mean that we get excited and, uh, about going out on one Saturday and so we spend a lot of time getting excited about it and praying for it and, and preparing for it and, and we get to go out for one Saturday. It means that we are to always be abounding in this work of the Lord. Every day, it ought to be a way of life for us. It ought to just become part of who we are. Romans chapter 12, and verse number 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. To lay your life down sacrificially, I'm not talking about giving him a token. I'm talking about sacrificing your life for the Lord Jesus Christ is just reasonable. It's not even extraordinary. It's not even above and beyond. It's not even abounding. It's just what's expected. For as much, look with me if you will, in verse number 58. For as much as ye, what's the next word? No. Do we know this? I'm going to ask you to think about this for a minute. Do we know this? I'm not asking if we can quote the verse. Do we know this? Is it just something that we can quote? Is it just some fact that we tuck away in our brains? Or is this a life-altering, life-changing truth that we are to be always abounding in light of the fact that His return is imminent? We are to be always abounding in the work of the... We're not to keep things out of our life that are in our life separate from God. We're to be so intertwined with God that as John said... If you abide in me and I in you. The idea of the fact that the, the branch cannot abide except it abide in the vine. The fact that our life is so intertwined with the Lord Jesus Christ that any labor we do is labor that first and foremost comes to our hearts and our minds as being His labor. To where it is natural for us to live the Christian life. Not something we try and labor at and try to, try to make our old carnal nature fit. But something that we have such victory in our lives that 
our lives become intertwined with His and we begin to serve Him, not because we have to, but because we get to. Not, not because we have to make ourselves do it, but because it, it's just part of who we are. It's called walking in the Spirit, I believe the Bible uses that phrase. Walking in the Spirit. For as much as ye what? No. Did you underline it? If you didn't underline it in your Bible, can you at least underline it in your brain tonight? For as much as ye know. Do we know this? Do we know this truth? Is this something that every moment of every day, it's at the foremost of our thoughts and our minds? Steadfast. Unmovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not, now watch this, in what? Wow, isn't that amazing? What did Solomon say his labor was without God? It's vanity. What does Paul say your labor is with God? It's not in vain, is it? For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Do we see the stark contrast here? What Solomon was speaking of and what Paul is speaking of? Do we see that there is a choice to be made in the Christian life and it's a choice that has to be made, and I'm sad to say it this way, but it's a choice that has to be made on a continual basis. We can either choose to live our life apart from God without thinking about God, without doing things along His will and along His plan for our life. And we can go out here like Solomon did. And we can say, oh no, I know Solomon lived that way and it, those were his results, but it won't happen to me. Somebody told me one time that the definition of insanity is doing the exact same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. If Solomon has already done it, if he's already gone down that road and come back and said it's vanity and vexation of spirit, why in the world would you and I ever want to go down that road? Years ago, we had a fellow in our church. His name was Woody Futrell. He's a very good friend of mine. In fact, he was on staff while I was at college at our church. His son and I were really good friends. And when I came back from college... Uh, He kind of took me under his wing and mentored me a little bit in some areas of ministry that I will be forever grateful for him for because the things that he showed me in about two or three months' time far exceeded the amount of knowledge I gained in four years of Bible college, and I mean that. Just from watching his life, the way that he taught some things from Scripture, and he kind of got my mind and my focus in the right place and in the right way, But he used to tell when he was a kid, he enjoyed uh, superheroes. Any of y'all like superheroes when you were kids? Uh, I like superheroes. Uh, I like to read about Spider-Man. He was one of my favorites when I was a kid. Batman. And uh, they had one out there called The Flash. Any of y'all remember The Flash? The Flash, man, he could move quick, couldn't he? And the neat thing about The Flash was he could vibrate his molecules in his body so fast that he could pass through solid objects. And Woody Futrell, as a kid, his hero was the Flash. 
And he used to tell us a story. They had a hill up behind his house. And he thought one day, he said, man, I want to be like the Flash. And there was this huge tree at the bottom of the hill. And he got up to the top of this hill one time and he thought, I'm going to be like the Flash. And he took off running down that hill and he got to going so fast down that hill and he thought, I'm sure I'm going to make it. And he went kersplat right into the face of that tree. And to hear him tell it, he said it knocked him unconscious. He fell, obviously, he fell back. And he said, I don't know how long I was out for, but he said, I remember waking up and I had a bad headache and I was all skinned up from the bark of the tree, bleeding and cut and... He said, the only thing I could think was I wasn't running fast enough. So he said, back to the top of the hill I went and did it all over again. And you know, we laugh at that. And I want you to, I hope that maybe this will help you remember the truth tonight as you leave here. A lot of us do that spiritually, don't we? We've seen Solomon's life. He gets to the end of it and says, Folks, I went down that road, the road that many of you are wanting to go down, to live your own life separate from God. And it was vanity and vexation of spirit. And then we go over and we read the Apostle Paul. And he says, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. We see a contrast of the vanity of anything we do outside of God and the benefit of of everything that we do with God. And it's our choice. And it's a daily choice. And it's a moment-by-moment choice that if we can ever get to the bottom of it, we can say, praise be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand together, shall we? Father, we're thankful for Your Word. Lord, what a great passage of Scripture. And Lord, I know it's not dealing specifically with what we're dealing with in the book of Ecclesiastes, but Lord, it ties very closely with it. And tonight, in giving some thought and praying about what you would want for this evening, I felt that we needed to bring this topic out at this time and pray that you would help to tie it in with what we're dealing with in the book of Ecclesiastes. Father, that we will learn that we ought always to be steadfast. We ought always to be unmovable. We ought always to be abounding in the work of the Lord. Father, we do this because we realize that Your coming is imminent. It could happen at any moment, at any time. And so, Father, I ask as we leave this place that You would help us to leave with eternity in view. We would live our lives by way of thinking of eternity we wake up in the mornings and think today could be the day we would live life according to that lord help us to bring honor and glory to you this week that we would be steadfast and always abounding in the work of the lord this week lord help us to do that we pray in jesus name amen